turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 6, but uh, I I just want to let you know in advance that we're going to be looking at Matthew 6, but I'm going to ask you to turn to a few other portions of Scripture. We're going to have a Bible study today. That means interactive. You're going to be turning to a few different Scriptures, so get your fingers ready, and uh, you may want to pre-mark a few places, Luke chapter 12, Philippians chapter 4. And then um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, those three scriptures besides Matthew chapter 6, Luke chapter 12, Philippians chapter 4, and 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we are about to look into your word. And just like we sang this great song, I Surrender All, we, um, we submit ourselves to what your Holy Spirit may want to teach us this morning, show us this morning in your word. Speak to us. And as you speak, Lord, we pray that our hearts, our minds, our ears would be open to listen and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Somebody handed me a little quip called Only in America. It goes like this. Only in America can a pizza get to your house faster than an ambulance. Only in America are there handicapped parking places in front of a skating rink. Only in America do people order double cheeseburgers, large fry, and a Diet Coke. Only in America do banks leave both doors open and then chain the pens to the counters. Only in America do we leave cars worth thousands of dollars in the driveway, then leave useless things and junk in boxes in the garage. Only in America do we use answering machines to screen calls, then have call waiting so we won't miss a call from someone we didn't want to talk to in the first place. (laughs) Only in America do we buy hot dogs in packages of 10 and buns in packages of 8. I've always wondered about that one. Well, that little quip shows the paradox of living in America, but it also highlights the fact that In America, in this Western civilization, we are incredibly blessed with lots of stuff, a lot of things. We have many options. And today, we want to look at stuff, our relationship to stuff, to riches, to wealth, to possessions. And it's something that followers of Christ must honestly and regularly evaluate. Our relationship to our treasure, our vision, and our master. Our treasure, what do we own? Our vision, how clearly do we see? Our master, who is it or what is it that owns us? We pick it up this morning in verse 19 of chapter 6, where Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness." No one can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. It might surprise some to realize that the Bible has a lot to say about what we own, about money, about wealth, about riches. It has a lot to say about earning it, about spending it, about saving it, about investing it, and about wasting it. In the New Testament alone, it's thought that at least one-sixth of the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one-sixth of those three gospels deal with our relationship to money. Now, the key issue here in our text isn't necessarily money as much as value. What is it exactly that we value? The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we've been studying that for several months now, and the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom manifesto. It's the king giving kingdom parameters, ground rules, for people who follow the king, King Jesus. In other words, if you follow King Jesus, this is how your life ought to look. This is how my life ought to look. And so he lays that groundwork, and then in chapter 6, he tells us some of the roadblocks for expanding in the kingdom of God. Roadblocks for building up ourselves in the kingdom of God. And the chief roadblock is hypocrisy. That's been the theme thus far in chapter 6. When you do a charitable deed, don't be like the hypocrites, Jesus says. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. When you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. That's been his theme in this chapter. The first part of chapter 6, Jesus zeroes in on our private lives. Praying to your Father in secret. Giving in a secret way so nobody knows you're doing it. Fasting in a secret way so that you don't appear to others to be fasting. Then the shift in the second part of the chapter is on our public life, our relationship to money, things, food, drink. Something else that you should notice, there is no major transition between the previous part of chapter 6 and this part. There's no major transition between giving, praying, and fasting, and treasures. That's an important distinction. Here's why. A lot of times as Christians, we divide life up. We have a false dichotomy. We divide life up into, well, this is material and this over here is spiritual. This is sacred. This is secular. Jesus doesn't do that. All of life, Jesus would say, should be lived in the light of the value system of the kingdom of God. There's an old Latin proverb that says, unless the vessel is clean, what you pour into it turns sour. So we want to look at the authentic Christian in the light of these three things, our treasure, our vision, our master. Let's look at the first one, verse 19, our treasure. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now allow me to clear up an issue. And here it is. Money is not evil. 
Money is neutral. It depends on why you're using it and how you're using it. You say, yeah, but money may not be evil, but money's the root of all evil. No, it's not. That's not what the Bible says. Paul writes to Timothy, and this is what he says, for the love of money is a root, not even the root. It's a root of all kinds of evil. Somebody could be in abject poverty and love money and be guilty of that. It's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. In fact, as you look in the Bible, there are some people that God blessed with great wealth. Abraham was one of them. His life was on a par with the kings of Canaan. In fact, did you know that Abraham had owned 318 trained servants, his own private militia, as well as herds and flocks and lands? Then there was Job, very wealthy, very prominent. And yes, everything was taken away, but the Bible says at the end of the book of Job that God blessed Job so that the latter end was even more in terms of material blessings than the former. Then there was Joseph. Joseph became second in command over Egypt. You might say the second richest guy in the world. Godly, he was. But very wealthy, and God used him. And the Bible has a lot to say, as I mentioned about this. In the book of Proverbs, by the way, Proverbs packed full of great counsel about wealth and riches. But in Proverbs 13, verse 4, the soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Now, in hearing all that, you might say, yeah, but I remember the story in the Bible of the rich young ruler. Jesus told the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You're right. He did say that to the rich young ruler. He didn't say that to Lazarus. He didn't say that to Mary. He didn't say that to Martha. He didn't say that to James. He didn't say that to John. He did say it to the rich young ruler. And here's why. Because to the rich young ruler, it was his riches that stood in the way between his heart and following the Lord Jesus Christ. For him, that was the one roadblock. And so Jesus said, get rid of it. Sell it. Give it to the poor. Then follow me and you'll have riches in heaven. Now, having said that, though uh, money is not evil, though wealth in and of itself is not evil, it can become evil. It can become a problem. Ask Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Ask Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 7. Ask Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Ask Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4. All of these people had a relationship with wealth, riches, the world, and eventually it strangleholded their own soul. Now, in our text is a commandment in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. The word treasure here is a word you're familiar with. When I say it in the Greek, you're going to go, I've heard that in English. Thesarus. Thesaurus. You know what a thesaurus is. It's a treasury of words, synonyms and antonyms, mostly synonyms, a thesaurus, a treasury of words. That's the word here for treasure. And in the Greek language, it's um, the use of the word twice. Literally, don't treasure treasures. And the idea isn't owning something. It's that you own and own and you hoard, you pile up, you stack it up. 
And notice the qualifying phrase, for yourselves. Don't treasure treasures for yourself. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, let's take a look at what it says. Okay, you're following me, good. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns, build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this then is the balance. Don't hoard, stack, treasure treasures for yourself. You can do something else with them is the implication. Paul writes young Timothy, his protege, 1 Timothy chapter 6. You don't have to turn there yet, but you will in a minute. The people who want to get rich, he said, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge, plunge men into ruin and destruction. Notice it's those who want to be rich. It's those who are striving for the treasuring up of treasures. Now, you'll also notice the stark difference between the two types of treasures that are given. Treasures in heaven versus treasures on earth. Don't treasure treasures on earth. Treasure treasures in heaven. One is temporal, one is eternal. One decays, one never decays. One needs constant maintenance and money and upkeep. And the other is eternal. The difference between those two can be seen in looking at two Middle Eastern tombs. One is the tomb of King Tut, the boy king of Egypt, and the other is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look into those tombs, you see the difference. King's King Tut's tomb, I don't know if you've seen it in the museums, they've taken his treasures around the world, a gold sarcophagus. Um, Inside the um, linings and the walls of the tombs, gold, silver, porcelain, precious gems. Tut believed in an afterlife, but he wanted to take it all with him. Newsflash, he couldn't do it. It's now in a museum. But look at the tomb of Jesus Christ. No treasures, no jewels, no money. And no body, because he rose from the dead. Of course, Jesus believed in the afterlife as well. Being God, of course, he would do this. But it wasn't all about treasuring up treasures and trying to take it with you in the future. In 1 Timothy, once again, he writes, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Have you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? You can't take it with you. Now, if you look at verse 20, 
of our text, money can be used for good if it's invested for spiritual reasons. But lay up or treasure up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Somebody once said, money's a lot like manure. Stack it up and it stinks. Spread it around, it makes things grow. If your dollar could speak, if your money could speak, it might say this, you hold me in your hand and you call me yours. Yet, may I not as well call you mine? See how easily I rule you? To gain me, you would all but die. I am invaluable as rain, essential as water. Without me, men and institutions would die. Yet, I do not hold the power of life for them. I am futile without the stamp of your desire. I go nowhere unless you send me. I keep strange company. For me, men mock love and scorn character. Yet I am appointed to the service of saints to give education to the growing mind and food to the starving bodies of the poor. My power is terrific. Handle me carefully and wisely, lest you become my servant rather than I yours. Now this brings up the question, how can I use my temporal riches for eternal rewards? How could I make a spiritual investment now with what God has given me for eternal benefits? I want to answer that question by having you turn to Philippians chapter 4. Flip flip to Philippians chapter 4 for just a moment. We get some insight into heavenly bookkeeping you may have never seen before. Philippians chapter 4. Now let's begin at verse 10. Paul writes to them, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you did send aid once and again for my necessities. Now stop there for a moment. Here's the picture. There's a church at Philippi who sent Paul out as a missionary. They sent money to support his cause. So Paul's out preaching the gospel, and this church had such a heart for his ministry that they sent aid, help, money, once and again. And recently, more recently, they've upped their support. Now look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Paul is using financial terms in that verse. He is referring to the credit side of a financial ledger. As if to mean, look, it's not that I want the gift, but when you give to my ministry 
and fruit comes from that, God will put it in your account. Imagine what that means. It means that when you get to heaven, you're going to have people walk up to you and say, thank you. And you'll say, I don't even know you. And they'll say, I'm from Cambodia. It's because you gave money to that missionary and they preached the gospel to me that I'm here. Thank you. And according to God's bookkeeping, the fruit that comes from that ministry will go to your account. You'll get a reward for it in heaven. Wow. That means when we give to ministries, we ought to invest. And so when a ministry says, you've got to give to this ministry, we're going under. If you don't send in your financial contribution, we're going to die. I don't send it to them. I want to find a ministry that's bearing fruit for the gospel, that's expanding. I want to invest in something that's saving souls and changing lives because fruit will abound in my account. Can you imagine sending Paul the Apostle out as your missionary? What a privilege to invest in that. But no doubt then, this is what Jesus meant in Luke 16, 9, when he said, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's what it means. So that's our treasure. Let's go back now to Matthew and look at the second issue, which is our vision. And you'll find that one dovetails into the other. Our vision. How clearly do you see? Verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The eye was considered the window to the human body. Just about everything we do, every function we perform, every action we're engaged in requires eyesight to do it well. Whether it's walking or running or driving, it's difficult to drive when you can't see, right? You need vision. So the light is admitted into the body, registered in the brain through the eyes. If a, a window is clear, the light that enters the room will be bright. If the window is obscured or dim, the light in the room is dull and dim. And so it is in a spiritual sense. Is there anything blocking the light of eternal values in your life? Or put it in another way, do you have spiritual cataracts so that the true light of what is valuable is not getting through? And, and it could simply be that some of us are short-sighted, near-sighted, because we're so preoccupied with our stuff, our investments, our world, our things, that we don't see eternity. We're focusing on things. King Henry IV of France once asked the Duke of Alva if he had seen the recent eclipse of the sun. And the Duke said, almost scorningly, he said, I'm too busy on earth to think about looking up into heaven. That's how a lot of people live their lives. They're so busy looking down, they're not bothering looking up. Now, spiritual eyesight, the ability to see clearly what life's about, what's valuable and what's not, must be guarded. If it is not guarded, it can grow dim 
Jesus said to religious leaders, blind guides, blind fools, blind men. All three of those were used in Matthew 23. Then Peter, the apostle, writes to the church and he tells them to continually grow in their faith and add to their faith. He said, add to your faith virtue and add to virtue knowledge and add to knowledge self-control and to self-control love and to love brotherly kindness. And here's why. He said, for if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Listen, if you love earthly things so much you can't let go of them, the light dims. It grows dimmer with each day. Back in 1975, there were six armed gunmen that walked into a London bank, stole $7 million worth of stuff, jewels, riches. One lady lost $500,000 worth of jewelry. When she found out that she had been robbed, her response was this, Everything I had was in there. My whole life was in that box. Is that the saddest thing you've ever heard? Your whole life was in a box? That's how bad it's gotten? That your whole life is in a little box? Because one day your life will be in a box under the ground. And if your life is in this little box now, that's sad. My whole life was in that box. Question, how do I protect my eyesight? Verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If, therefore, your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. The word good, aplus, means single. A single, direct, focused outlook. The, um, the opposite of aplus would be diplus, double vision, seeing two things, your eye put on two different things. The idea here is of having a single, undivided loyalty. Sort of like in sports. They say, keep your eye on the ball. Because whatever your eye is on, that's what you'll hit. Keep your eye on the ball. Have a single, undivided, spiritual loyalty. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You see, things, riches, pursuits, can obscure our vision. Helen Keller was once asked, Isn't it a terrible tragedy that you were born blind? And she thought for a moment and she said, um, it's better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and be able to see nothing at all. Seeing spiritual values. Now, one practical way to keep your, your life focused on spiritual things is to be generous. If you are generous with what the Lord has entrusted to you, it's not going to be an issue. If you're not generous, it is an issue already. Turn with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I promised we'd get there. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is the last other scripture we're going to turn to this morning. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. We'll start there. Paul writes, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Isn't that a great description of money? 
How certain is it? Very uncertain. Ask the stock market. But in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy, let them, that is the rich in this age, do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Here's, the, here's what he's saying. Be generous and have a light touch with stuff. Have a light touch with stuff. Be generous. Be willing to give, to share. Again, storing up treasures in heaven. That's the idea. There was a rich man. He was talking to his pastor and he said, um, when I had $50,000, I was happy. Now that I have $500,000, I'm miserable. The pastor smiled and said, the solution's quite easy. Give away $450,000. And the rich man said, I can't. Having money is like grabbing an electrical wire. The more the juice, the hotter and the higher the hold. The more the juice, the harder the hold. Grabs a hold. Now let's look at the third one in our text back in Matthew chapter 6. We have seen our treasure... And our treasure is determined by our vision. And ultimately, our vision is determined by our master. Who owns you? What owns you? Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is the um, Syriac term or Aramaic term for money, wealth, riches. And uh, Jesus is employing a common image from the first century and that of slavery. uh, Half of the Roman Empire was slaves in those days. And people who heard the term serving God, serving money in that kind of a context, cultural context, they understood what he was talking about. Slaves don't work part-time for their masters. They are full-time They give themselves in complete surrender to a master. That's the idea that Jesus is speaking about. In other words, materialism can enslave the heart. And i got to tell you, I believe our nation, our nation of America, is trusting more in its wealth, even though our money says in God we trust, and it's a great motto. Did you know, by the way, that the first coin minted that said, in God we trust, was back in 1840. Um, It was a two-cent piece, uh, and it was put on top, uh, excuse me, 1864 was the year, in God we trust. The idea came from a Philadelphia minister who knew the secretary of the treasury under Abraham Lincoln named Salmon Porter Chase. And uh, he told him that we ought to put that as the motto on our money. Salmon Porter Chase was a devout Christian. He wrote to the director of the Mint of the United States of America in a letter that said, quote, No nation can be strong except in the strength of God or safe except in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. And so the motto, In God We Trust, it's a great motto. But if we were to honestly appraise America's trust, I think it would be more accurate to say, in goods we trust, in wealth we trust, in our military we trust, in our um, ingenuity we trust. It should be in God we trust. Are you a Christian? 
If you're a Christian this morning, then recognize something. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire. God owns you. God owns you. If you're a Christian, God owns you. Paul the Apostle wrote, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is His? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. When you come to Jesus Christ, understand the relationship is one of surrender. Don't think you can come to Jesus and say, yeah, I need Jesus in my life, so I'll add him and I'll just kind of put him here on the shelf because I can be everything else and a Christian. No, when you come to Jesus, you give him the pink slip to your life. You ever seen the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot? That's hogwash. That's not Christianity. Christianity is he's the driver. I'm sitting in the back seat, not Jesus. He's got the pink slip. It's one of absolute surrender because you can't serve two masters. Otherwise, you will reduce Christianity to serving God on Sundays and mammon Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Otherwise, you'll reduce Christianity to lip service rather than life service. Verse 20. Let's close on that note. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Let's make spiritual investments. If you're a Christian, heaven has been given to you as a free gift, but you've got to furnish it yourself. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Invest for the future. Martin Luther used to say, Three conversions are necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the pocketbook, which he said is usually the last to be converted. All of life surrendered to him. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Who's got your heart? What has your heart? What is your master passion? Ask yourself. Dwight L. Moody, one of his favorite illustrations when he preached was an illustration of a legend, the legend of a swan that came out of heaven down to the earth and spoke with a crane who was looking for snails in a shallow stream. So the swan came out of heaven and the crane said, where are you from? The swan said, I'm from heaven. The crane said, where is that? And the swan said, you've never heard of heaven with its gold streets and its gates of pearl? No, said the crane. So the swan told all about heaven, its glory, its beauty, its worship, its joy. And the crane said, are there any snails up there? The swan said, of course not. There's no snails, it's heaven. And went on to describe what is there. And all the crane could say is, then you can have your heaven I want snails. A lot of people have made that choice in life. You can have your heaven. I want stuff. You can have your heaven. I want this. God is offering you forever. God is offering you treasures that never decay or never grow old or never rust. You can't take stuff from here there, but you can stockpile a lot of stuff there while you're here, spiritual investments. I would encourage you this morning, if you haven't done already, to open an account in heaven with God 
And let me just say, God doesn't care as much about your money as your heart. Because once God has your heart, God has you. And I'm not going to say, now that we've take, uh, given that sermon, we're going to take another offering. Because <laughs> God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And God can provide. God wants your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if you don't have our hearts already, we pray that you would speak to ones around this auditorium. And we pray, Father, that Jesus Christ would become the King. That an account would be opened this morning as Jesus becomes the King of individual kingdoms. That there would be a surrendering of a life or two or three or twenty. Do your work, we ask. As we continue to pray right now, We're just in an attitude of meditation, quietness before the Lord with each other. If you're with us this morning and you would have to admit, I haven't surrendered my life yet to Jesus. Oh, I've come to church. I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to become a good citizen. But I haven't surrendered my life, my future, my all to Him. And maybe God right now is speaking to your heart and tugging at your soul and you experience that. It's the time then for you to release your life into his care, to give him the pink slip, to let him rule and control you. If you're willing to do that, as we're praying that you would, I want you to raise your hand up in the air because I want to pray for you as we close this service. And you're just admitting, pray for me, Skip. I need to do this. God bless you and you, sir, and you, ma'am. In the middle. God bless you and you to my left, right over here, and in the back, in the back, yep, right over here to the left, and in the middle, several of you, and right in the middle. Anybody else? In the balcony. Mm Mm-hmm. Lord, thanks so much for these hands that represent hearts and lives, desires, ambitions, expectations. You love each one with a tender and everlasting love. And your plan for each individual person is individual and perfect. And Lord, as these lives are now and will be surrendered to you, we pray, Lord, that you would make them rich beyond all earthly measure as treasures are laid up in heaven. As these lives surrendered to you bring forth fruit, For your kingdom, bless each one in Jesus' name. Amen.